Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hi there. Thank you for joining us once again on the Space Nuts podcast. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me, as always, Dr. Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. I'm still at large. They haven't found me yet. (laughs) I think they've given up looking. Yeah, they probably did many years ago. That's right. <laughs> Quite right, too. Mm. Now, today we've got uh, a few interesting topics, uh, one that's certainly caught the media by storm, and we'll uh, look into that uh, being the Space Doogie. This is the uh, exo-asteroid that passed through our solar system uh, last year, and we've sort of been able to figure out where it came from, uh, and there's been a few questions about it and now they're starting to think it might not have been a rock it might be something else at least a few people think that we'll look into that Uh, we'll also answer questions from ryan in delaware about exoplanet detection and gordon's asking about seeing things that no longer exist in terms of light detection so those those are two interesting questions we will tackle today but first fred They have um, more or less confirmed that in the middle of the Milky Way galaxy, there is a supermassive black hole Uh, full of of biros. (laughs) So that's where they go. That's exactly Ah. where they go. I'm sure of it. Okay. All right. Uh, So this is um, a sort of ongoing project, Andrew, that you and I, I think, have spoken about before, but it's just taken a kind of quantum leap forward that uh, really, um, you know, it, it is, is the, the definitive proof that what we're dealing with in the centre of our galaxy is a, is a supermassive black hole. Not that any was needed, to be honest, because the previous work really demonstrates that. Um, let me just recap briefly. Uh, when you look at the Milky Way, uh, you're looking through the thickness of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, a swirling disk of hundreds of billions of stars and gas and dust and all that stuff. Uh, We see the centre of our galaxy in the direction of Sagittarius, which is certainly the richest part of the Milky Way, but it's also very dusty. Uh, So in order to penetrate that dust um, with telescopes, you need to move from the visible region of the spectrum into the infrared region of the spectrum. And scientists uh, over a very long period of time have been using the VLT, the very large telescope down in Chile, um, to uh, actually look through the dust and see planets, I beg your pardon, see stars which are in orbit around an object in the dead center of the galaxy. Uh, A thing, by the way, that we give the strangely weird name of Sagittarius A star to. Uh, Sagittarius A star is a radio source, and it's written just like that, Sagittarius A and an asterisk. Uh, It's always been called Sagittarius A star. I think it was to distinguish it from another radio source nearby, but Sagittarius A star is the one that we associate with uh, the uh, the galactic centre. Okay, so that position 
coincides with something that's very dark in infrared uh, spectra, but there are stars around, sorry, in the infrared wave band, mm -hmm. but there are stars around it. And those stars have been observed for 20 years or so, and you can plot their orbits um, because you can sort of, you know, look at great detail in this region of the, uh, of the center of our galaxy. And there's a group Lady, if I remember rightly, by Reinhard Genzel, who's at the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics in Germany. Um, that group has been studying this swirling group of stars going around the galactic center. And actually, the, the dynamics of them, when you, when you plot their orbits and everything, that also tells you that there's a 4 million solar mass black hole in the middle, mainly because you can't see it. They seem to be orbiting around nothing, which all, always looks a bit weird. But that's because the black hole is, is not visible in infrared. However, um, there is an instrument which uh, uses the Very Large Telescope. And by the way, the Very Large Telescope is four telescopes, actually, uh, four unit telescopes, as they're called, each one with an 8.2-meter diameter mirror. They're very big instruments. Um, but there is an instrument, there is a way of using them together, um, combined with some smaller auxiliary telescopes, that lets you carry out something called interferometry. And interferometry is a way of, of observing things of a very short um, uh, distance scales. By that I mean to, 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 to actually observe the finest detail in distant objects. So they've used this technology and now they are looking not at stars orbiting the black hole, but at the accretion disk of the black hole. That's wow. the disk of swirling material around it which is the last thing that, that happens before stuff gets sucked in to the, uh, to the, to the black hole itself. Mm. Um, they've uh, actually been looking at infrared flares from this region. So as this gas goes round, it's excited into emission, uh, actually partly by, the, by magnetic effects within the, you know, with, with the black hole itself and, and within the disk of swirling material. Um, and so you get these infrared flares. And uh, with this uh, sort of super-duper interferometer at um, Cerro Paranal, where the Very Large Telescope is, they've actually been able to observe these flares moving around the black hole. In, in something called the innermost stable orbit. That's to say they're seeing things that if, if they were any nearer to the black hole, they'd get sucked in. They'd be on the event horizon. That's okay. the, the horizon okay. so beyond which close, we can't see. They're as closest to the, uh, closer to the drain hole as they can get without, before getting sucked down. Without being sucked down, that's right. Mm. And so the observations that they've made, first of all, uh, they, they confirm that this accretion disk is, is nearly face on to us. And that sort of ties in with the way the stars are swirling around it too. So the accretion disk is face on. And what that means is that they've been able to watch things move around it uh, at something like 30% of the speed of light. That just blows uh, my mind. It, uh, it is mind-blowing stuff. But um, there is a lovely confirmation uh, in this as well. And it sort of harks back to something we were talking about last week. We were talking about polarization last week mm. in regard to the, the two dust clouds uh, around, uh, you know, orbiting with the moon. Uh, polarization has been used also 
by the scientists looking at the black hole in the galactic center, because you would expect the light from it, uh, from this, this, uh, these infrared, um, um, you, you know, flares to be polarized. It is. And the polarization itself also rotates, which is what you'd expect as these things are carried around uh, the, the black hole. So really staggering stuff. Uh, once again, the, the, the calculations all point to a supermassive black hole four million times the mass of the sun, which is now pretty well done and dusted. Yeah. Um, what I think we've got to wait for, and you and I have spoken about this before too, with some uh, excitement, is the results from the, uh, what's it called, the Event Horizon Telescope, this mm. radio telescope that wants to actually try and image the black hole itself. Um, I think um, we're still waiting on, on news of that. So it is focused on this particular black hole. And, same and, one. Sorry? Yeah. Yes, it's the same one. Yeah, That's yeah. the same black hole that is being observed. Okay, so uh, we still can't or haven't seen one, but we're hoping that we will now be able to. Uh, and and it's, it's a strange thing, isn't it, where we've got all the data that proves that something exists and yet we have never seen one. Every, everything <laughs> just is there to say that thing is in existence it is right there we're looking at the place it is but yep. we can't see it yeah well, that, that's correct it's the, <laughs> and it's otherwise known as the balance of my bank account but, yes um, stuff that you're looking at that you can't see yes exactly <laughs> well right. in your case it's because there's nothing there <laughs> yeah, no, you can't photograph it <laughs> okay so um if they're getting ready to try and give us a look at this thing, uh, when might we expect some result from that? Um, well, well, the observations, as I understand it, let me just check up on that. Um, the observations were made um, last year. We talked about this some time ago. I think yeah, we, we talked did. about this in July. Mm. Um, we talked about the Event Horizon Telescope. But the, the, the observations were made in April 2017, um, and we, as far as I know, the, the the numbers are still being crunched from all that. There's still compiling the data, image rendering, comparing models and things of that sort. Uh, I I don't know. I think uh, my guess now is that it will be in the new year before we before we get these results. I think um, if there's something dramatic. Uh, what will happen is that the scientists will wait for a time when there aren't elections taking place in the USA and things of that sort happening that swallow soaking up all the media's attention. Yes. Um, so yes. there will be there will be an announcement. I, I, I don't have any inroads. Um, I don't actually know anybody directly connected with this, so I don't have any you know back back room gossip about um, when it might be. But I will keep my ears open if yes. I hear anything. I'll let you and our listeners know. Indeed. We can't wait to see it. It'll probably just look like a black hole, I imagine. But um, <laughs> we'll, we'll find out, I hope. It'll look like your bank balance. Yeah, It'll well, be black and not actually, really mine's, there. Mine's much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I 
particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity, even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Roger, you're live, sir, here also. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we turn our intention to a big pile of doogie in space. This is, um, this is the rock that passed through our solar system last year, and it was sort of past us before we realised it was there, and then they investigated it and discovered it wasn't one of ours. It had um, flown in from some other galaxy or some other part of, um, of the galaxy, um, and and it's it's been it was determined to be a rock. It was an unusual rock. It was the shape of a doogie uh, or a cigar, if you want to be a bit more appropriate, which I don't like being. If you if you remember, but, Andrew, I likened it to to a French loaf. Yes, that's which right. I think is- Probably yes. the most culinary satisfying version the of space, your analogs there. The space baguette. But <laughs> space baguette, it's, that's right. Uh, and, and it's called Oumuamua, which is what, the welcome visitor or the, the guy who just went past and stole your keys without looking, uh, whatever it is. But uh, it's back in the news because there's now some speculation that it might actually be artificial. So... And the word alien has popped up. I haven't used that one myself, but it is being used. So where are we at here? Are we talking a big pile of doogie here? <laughs> Look, we're still talking about an asteroid, I think. Um, let's recap again. Uh, Umuamua, a Hawaiian word meaning a messenger from a, uh, the first messenger from afar, I think, if, uh, if I remember rightly, chosen because this object was discovered by a telescope at Haleakala on the island of Maui in the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, this thing passed through the solar system around about a year ago, October, November last year, um, and its velocity was... Uh, such that uh, we immediately knew that it wasn't something that belonged to the solar system. It passed through on a trajectory uh, which brought it in from outside and will take it outside again mm. as it carries on on its um, on its journey through space. So uh, very exciting stuff. It was the first interstellar asteroid. 
Um, now, uh, the, 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 there was some debate at the time as to what this object was. Was it an asteroid or was it a comet? And the, the difference between them is that basically asteroids are, are rocky, comets are icy. That's the, the you know, the, the bottom line, although comets also include um, a lot of dust in them. Uh, the, the weird thing is that it was long and thin, as you've described, so graphically, if I might say. Uh, it's something like a quarter of a kilometre long, or 250 metres, or 250 yards or thereabouts, uh, by about 40 metres, uh, and, and cigar-shaped, and tumbling end over end, so that it had, um, I think it's got a rotation period or a tumble period of something like eight hours, something of that sort. And it was that tumbling, of course, and the way its brightness changed that allowed astronomers to work out more or less what its shape was. Um, what uh, really sort of clinched the idea that it was an asteroid is that people observed it as closely as they could, given that it had already passed its, its closest to the sun and indeed its closest to the earth. Um, they observed it to look for any evidence of what we call outgassing. This is material coming off the surface, which is typical of what happens to comets when they get uh, reasonably close to the sun, yeah. uh, and that the gas comes off and is excited uh, to, to glow, uh, which is why we think of comets as being these <clears throat> very bright objects traveling through our night skies. <clears throat> Excuse me. However, uh, nothing was seen in that regard, uh, and so the conclusion came that it was an asteroid, and in fact its color uh, it's a slightly reddish color, is also consistent with a rocky surface that's been bombarded for a long time, millions of years, by cosmic rays, the, the, the subatomic particles that, that really permeate the whole of, uh, whole of space. So that sort of seemed to, you know, put the lid on the, the discovery, except <clears throat> that there were uh, slight peculiarities in its, in its trajectory. And... Um, this sort of led to the idea of it being a comet being reopened because um, it, it experienced some accelerations that could really only be explained if something was pushing it slightly. Mm. And so the suggestion is that perhaps it was actually outgassing. There were, you know, there, there were plumes of gas coming from this thing which were providing an acceleration, changing its orbit very slightly. We can detect these things very accurately, Andrew. That's why uh, little nitty-gritty things like this crop up. So that was speculated, although, once again, there was no sign of any cometary, uh, you know, any cometary outgassing. So uh, what has now happened is a paper um, which has been produced by scientists at Harvard University in the USA. And uh, I have to say that its lead author is... Uh, let me just get <laughs> We're getting that. phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> its lead author so Everyone's is, got an opinion on this. Yeah, the, indeed. Its lead author is a is a <laughs> is um, somebody who's uh, always a bit provocative when it comes to this sort of thing, mm -hmm. um, and I'll I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, but the the paper is really about what kind of um, ex, you know what uh, could be causing this acceleration, and a lot of the paper is is about the idea of radiation pressure from the sun pushing, uh, you know, this, uh, or giving this, um, this acceleration that Oumuamua uh, seemed to exhibit. So that uh, was the bulk of the paper. But right at the end, there is a little bit that says, 
what about speculating that this is actually a light sail, that this thing is an artificial uh, spacecraft with a light sail which is receiving the sun's radiation and that's causing it to accelerate. So the, uh, the author of the paper uh, or the authors of the paper immediately get into highly speculative uh, regions. Um, and a lot of, there have, has been a lot of commentary by other astronomers on this, um, saying, you know, why, why do you go to the, 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 the least likely explanation uh, of, of this, uh, you know, of whatever this phenomenon might be? Uh, there was one, actually, there was it, one it comment gets, that It was, gets attention, that's why. It gets attention and it gets you noticed. Yes, I, and, and I the media's the media's unwritten rule is never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So they've <laughs> latched on to the least likely um, situation, and it's become the lead. That's what I reckon. Yeah, one of one of the well, that's of course that's right. That's that's what it's all about. It's Avi Loeb is the um, is the. Uh, the, ch the, the the chief author. He's actually he's the chairman the, of Harvard. He's the Doogie Harvard. stirrer. That's who he is. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a co-author. Um, uh, you know, he's um, basically uh, he's put put this idea out. Um, one of the comments that comes from an astronomer uh, who's basically not uh, you know not connected with this research. Actually, uh, somebody in uh, Heidelberg in Germany. Uh, in science, uh, he says, we must ask ourselves, where is, where is the evidence? Not, where is the lack of evidence so that I can fit any hypothesis that I like? Mm -hmm. uh, because that's effectively what's happened. Um, so, yes, it it's certainly causes a stir in the world. It's, it's got pub uh, some publicity for the Harvard Astronomy Department and uh, Avi Loeb, the chairman of that department. Uh, this scientist I might mention is also the one who speculated that fast radio bursts, which are something else that currently don't hang have on, an explanation. Fast radio bursts. That's the one, fast radio bursts, yes, right. uh, exactly as we were t speaking. That those, those are the, the result of, uh, uh, of aliens using lasers to pr uh, you know, propel light sails through the universe. He's very keen on the idea of light sails uh, and clearly brings them into uh, any conversation uh, where it seems relevant. Fair enough. I, I, I actually don't have a problem with that. I think it's good, it's good to put these ideas out there. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, at the same time, it's also good to realise that they are highly speculative uh, and, um, you know, um, may well be a long way from the truth. But never say never. But, but never say never. <laughs> never exactly. say never. Uh, and, light, and light sails are being looked at as a viable transport option for long-haul space travel. We're even looking Indeed, at sending right. some to Alpha Centauri, aren't we? That's right. And in fact, Avi Loeb is, is actually an advisor on that project, which mm. is, uh, you know, the Breakthrough Starshot project. Yeah. So okay. there you go. You can see why uh, he's keen on light For sails. all intents and purposes and lots of tongues in cheeks, this is a rock. Yeah, as far as we know, it's still it's a rock. The problem is, Andrew, that um, because it was moving so quickly, there was no chance of mounting an expedition to send a spacecraft to chase after it and get photographs or anything. It, it came and it went, and it came and went very quickly. Um, however, what it does suggest is that, um, you know, taking the hypothesis, hypothesis that this is actually an interstellar asteroid, a, a natural object that's escaped from some other solar system and has basically stumbled into ours and gone off on its way. What it does suggest is that these things 
are not um, totally uh, rare that we might well see, in fact, some people speculate of the order of one of these a year. Mm. And so we should be more prepared the next time there is one and, you know, have a better have a better set of telescopes looking at it and be a little bit more vigilant as to uh, try and catch it when it gets close to us rather than when it's waving goodbye. Very good. All right. Uh, sorry to disappoint everybody, but it's a rock. <laughs> You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, astronomer Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, to some questions. We're going to try and tackle a couple today. If we do them by twos, we'll never catch up anyway, but we're going to do two today. <laughs> and uh, this one comes from Ryan in Delaware. I had a quick question about the exoplanet detection method known as the transit method. Because the transit method uses the slight dimming of a star's light to find planets, that presupposes that the orbital plane of the system is on edge with our viewing angle. Uh, have we determined if the majority of exosolar systems have their orbital planes aligned with each other? Are they aligned to the orbital plane of the Milky Way? And for that matter, is our solar system aligned with the Milky Way? Thanks in advance and keep up the great work. Well, oh, do we have to? Um, but uh, thank you, Ryan, for the question. Um, what do you think? That's an interesting question about the observational angles of these events. Yeah, it is a great question and uh, embodies a number of um, a, a number of parts to it. Um, the bottom line is that the answer to most of those questions is no. But let me start with the first <laughs> one. Um, have we determined if the majority of exosolar systems have their orbital planes aligned with each other? So um, when people propose the transit method as a way of detecting um, the planets around other stars, and remember this is because the planet actually passes between the, the, the parent star and ourselves. And then, of course, that means that in order for it to do that, the orbit plane must be at least reasonably well aligned. When people first proposed this, they looked at the statistics. In other words, they said, we expect orbit planes of, of solar systems to be completely randomly orientated. Um, and so they did the statistics based on that and said, yeah, well, it's still worth doing it because there'll still be enough of these things crossing, uh, you know, crossing in front of their parent stars. And what we find, um, it, we, we, we now believe that there is at least one planet for every solar system, for, for every star. Mm -hmm. um, that's least. something we simply didn't know before. But when you do the statistics, um, you find exactly that, that... Uh, you've, the statistics match what you get if all the orbit planes were randomly uh, aligned. In other words, there's no alignment between the planets of different solar systems. So they're, they're, they're randomly, um, you know, their angles are, are, are quite random. Uh -huh. <clears throat> so um, Ryan's uh, secondary questions to that is, are they aligned to the orbital plane of the Milky Way? The answer is no, uh, because there, there is no you know, there is no alignment there. And in fact, you've only to look at our own system, our own solar systems almost at right angles to the plane of the Milky Way, not quite, but kind of very steeply inclined, um, which, it, you know, immediately answers that, that it's, it's uh, not a requirement that there, there should be an alignment with the Milky Way. Um, and uh, the, in fact, that answers the, la the last question uh, in, in Ryan's email. Um, it's interesting, though, to look at such alignments. Um, there was a time, uh, it's probably 
20 or 30 years ago with, it must be more than that actually, colleagues I worked with at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh thought they could see alignments when they looked at distant galaxies, that they seem to be aligned in a similar way. And that's been borne out um, by more recent work that's looked at uh, very distant galaxies. And there are hints of the fact that the excuse me the planes of these galaxies are all parallel um and it's it seems to be because they are lying along these the filaments of material we now know that that you know on very large scales the universe is this kind of honeycomb structure with galaxies lying along the the walls of the honeycombs we call them filaments um and it looks as though there are within a, a given filament um that the galaxies seem to be generally aligned uh, along the filaments. It's it's still a pretty speculative result, I think. But that's the only kind of alignment that we get with these uh, very large systems. That's not to say that solar systems, you know, that's nothing to do with the solar systems of individual stars. But um, it, it does tell you that astronomers do look for these alignments and sometimes think they find them. Mm. I suppose the natural tendency is to think we had a big bang, it blew out in all directions and everything would be on the level, so to speak. But um, yeah. over billions of years, things change. You've got div- dif- different gravitational influences and you know, things merging it, with it, other things. Yeah. And Even that doesn't work, though, because as far as we know, uh, the way space expanded after the Big Bang is isotropically, which means the same in all directions. Yeah. And so you've still got that randomness of direction built in there. Mm. Okay, Ryan? You got a big no, my friend. No, 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 and I think was it only three or four? Doesn't matter. But we appreciate the question. Back to the drawing yeah. board for you, Ryan. But uh, we it's at least worth asking. Know. Yeah, well, it is definitely worth asking. Worth asking. Well done. Uh, now we move on to Gordon, who uh, has a couple of questions for us. We're going to have to go back to the first one because it's way too hard. It's way too hard. <laughs> But we'll, um, he's uh, sort of reflecting on one of our earlier episodes, episode 97, uh, where we referenced the discovery of Icarus, a star 100 times the mass of our sun, about 9.5 billion light years away. I feel I may be missing something, don't we all, but how is it possible to see the light from a star that would have burned for only a few million years from a distance of 9.5 billion light years? Surely all radiation would have been extinguished extinguished and invisible by now. Great question. That's, However, I think I, I think I know where you're going to go with this because I think we've talked about it before. <laughs> well, there's, there's kind of two, two answers to this. Um, uh, first of all, um, the... Gordon's absolutely right that something 9.5 billion light years away is going to be very faint. It takes us all our times to see galaxies at that sort of distance, let alone individual stars. Uh, This particular star was a very bright one. And also, um, as I recall, it was gravitationally lensed. So it, it was sitting behind another galaxy and the gravitational force of that galaxy or the gravitational distortion of space of that galaxy acted like a natural telescope, which is what allowed us to see this single star uh, nine and a half billion light years away, which still, I think, must be some kind of record breaker. Mm. So you're right that um, the, 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 the light travelling for all those billions of years 
has got very feeble because light, um, you know, it, it actually follows the inverse square law. It diminishes by the square of its distance from any, any source. Uh, so at that sort of distance, it, it's very, very faint. But there was a natural coincidence that allowed us to see it. Um, the, the other side of it, though, is that um, you're quite right, Gordon, in speculating that this star, and I think this is what you're saying, it didn't burn for very long. It burned for a few million years. That's, in fact, that's exactly what you say. Uh, it, it probably was literally only a few million years. So what's happening there is that uh, if you imagine that star being very bright for a few million years, what it does is it, it sort of emits a shell of light that is expanding around it at the speed of light. Uh, and you, it means you've got to be in the right place to see that star being bright. And it just so happens that that shell uh, has now reached 9.5 billion light years, and we can see it. But if we wait another 100 million years, and some of us will, I'm sure you will, Andrew, uh, and then look patient. at it. <laughs> Uh, it will it'll, it'll not be visible because it, it will have been extinguished. So, so you're quite right that uh, events in in deep space, um, you know, to 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 find them, uh, if if you've got things that are only relatively short lived, uh, like this star, then you've got to be looking at the right time in order for that radiation to reach your telescopes. The, the classic example of this is a supernova. Supernovae get very bright, uh, and indeed we can see them at distances gr far greater than this 9.5 billion light years. They're exploding stars. Um, they get very bright for a very short period, usually a matter of weeks only. And what that means is that you've got to be looking at that time when the light, when the when the wave of light or the the the, the pulse of light from your your supernova actually passes the distance of the Earth, uh, because then it's gone afterwards. Yeah, I suppose uh, another way of looking at it is that we probably have missed a multitude of events like this simply because the light didn't get here or we weren't looking when it did. Yeah, or it's long gone, or, or it's long gone. Right. Yeah, humans didn't exist when the light passed us. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And, you, and and on a, a, another point is we we don't know what's around the corner. We don't know what we might see next. The universe is ever changing. And then, yeah, indeed, that's right. And yeah, and and you, actually, you, you highlight something important there, Andrew, because this is there's a whole new uh, field of astronomy which is essentially the astronomy of transient events, things that come and go. Uh, there is a big new telescope being built in, uh, in it's actually going to be in Chile. Um, it's a large international consortium. It's called the, the Large... SBVLT, slightly yeah, bigger the, than the Very Large Telescope. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's something like that. It's actually, it's, uh, to be honest, the, the acronym makes even less sense than that does. <laughs> it's the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, uh, an eight-metre-class telescope, which will, as, as I recall, it will look at the entire sky every six nights. Wow. So it takes it six nights to measure the, to, to observe the entire sky, and then it goes back and does it again. And, and on the seventh so it's night, it's for, rested. Well, more or less, yes, that's right. I think, I'm sure I've heard that before somewhere. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Be. Okay. Uh, Gordon, thank you for that uh, insightful question. Uh, it's a good one. And, uh, yeah, we just happen to be in the right place at the right time to see Ooh. what we could see.
Uh, and we do welcome your questions and your feedback and, and your ongoing support. So thank you uh, for listening. And thank you, Fred, for um, doing what you do. We really do appreciate it. It's great fun. Great pleasure, Andrew. Always good to talk, and we'll chat again soon. We will indeed. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, although I found him, and he'll be back next time on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.